Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast. Episode 43, Israel My Beloved. Well, it's Monday, uh, May 23rd, which of course means that Harold Camping was wrong in his prophecy that the rapture <laughs> would have been, uh, was, to, was to happen on April 21st. Um, either that or I'm one of the uh, many professing Christians who are not actually believers, <laughs> which would apparently include Harold Camping himself since he's also still around. No, obviously he, he was wrong. Um, and today we're going to be talking about an, an, a topic that seems kind of unrelated. Um, and in fact, you know, I had no intention to have these two, you know, this topic line up with uh, with the predicted date of the rapture on the part of Harold Camping. But but in reality, it is it is related. And, and, he, and let me explain why. Um, you know, we preterists, including myself, um, we we think that the clear understanding of many of the passages that uh, rapturists like Harold Camping would point to, the, the clear ma- meaning of those passages. Uh, is that something was was about to happen in that first century that had nothing to do with the second advent of Christ. Um, and we think that if if people would just wake up to what is the obvious meaning of many of these passages, um, you wouldn't have false prophets, at least not as many uh, false prophets around like Harold Camping. Um, uh, th- this this idea of calculating uh, dates, this idea of uh, uh, the church being raptured away to leave the, um, the unbelieving world behind, all this kind of stuff just falls apart. It, it disappears once you accept what the Bible clearly says about uh, you know that generation of of uh, Jews not entirely passing away before what Jesus had prophesied would take place. Um, but the problem, and this is why I say that this topic we're going to talk about today is related. The problem is that, uh, and, and you're going to hear us talk about this at the end of at the end of this episode. Um, the problem is that uh, many futurists and premillennialists and dispensationalists won't even give a fair hearing um, to the preterist understanding of the end times. And I think that this issue of Israel is part of the reason for that. And I, I don't want to give too much away, so I'm, I'm going to let um, uh, I'm just going to let you listen to our conversation, particularly at the end where we talk about this. But the point is, you need. You need to you need to listen to this uh, issue of Israel very carefully. You need to take it seriously. You need to look at what the Bible says about Israel, because um, if we don't get it right, then we're not going to be able to convince um, the rapturists and the dispensationalists and and the futurists. We're not going to be able to convince them about what these passages really say about the end times. Because there's a stumbling block there, and we're going to get into that into this episode. I've got, I've got, I'm going to have my uh, my good friend David Jaroslow on today, um, and uh, we'll go ahead and we'll jump right into that interview here in a moment. Uh, but I do want to first play uh, the next promo in, my, promo in my promo rotation, which is for Mary Jo Sharp's Confident Christianity. <laughs> Hello, welcome to the Confident Christianity Podcast. Grace and peace to you. I'm Mary Jo Sharp, the founder of Confident Christianity Apologetics Ministry. I'm glad you could join me as we spur Christians on to maturity and unity in Christ. 
while discussing the difficult questions about belief in God. I very highly recommend Mary Jo Sharp's ministry. Um, it's really exciting and encouraging for me to see, you know, brilliant minds, th critical thinkers in the faith that are women, encouraging other women um, to take seriously theology and apologetics. Because, um, you know, whereas whereas Matt Slick and I, um, as we talked about a few episodes ago, would agree that um, that leadership, that positions of authority in the church are not roles that women are intended to fulfill. Nevertheless, every believer, woman, males and females, um, are called to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is within them. Uh, and Mary Jo Sharp is excellent at doing just that and encouraging other women to do just that. So I recommend you check out her ministry. Um, I don't know yet. I'm, I'm not sure if she's still doing episodes in the podcast. I think she's really busy right now and intends to get back to it. Um, but even apart from her podcast, she's got a great number of resources available at, uh, at Confident Christianity. Um, debates that she's done on, on Islam and, and a whole number of other things. So I would definitely recommend that you check those, those resources out. So with that, let's go ahead and move right into today's interview with my good friend, David Jerusalem. I'm joined today by my guest and good friend, David Jarislow, uh, to do a part two on the Israelology series that we started several months ago. Uh, thanks for joining me today, David. Oh, thanks for having me. Now, last we talked on the air, so to speak anyway, was back in September of last year. And although we had hoped to do this part two sooner, various other commitments have prevented us from recording until now. What's going on that's new in your life? What have you been up to since last we spoke? Well, I am currently in the process of pursuing a Master's of Divinity degree in theology at Liberty University Online. In fact, I got my first A, which I'm very happy about. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, just finished up a large 42-page paper. Uh, 39 references. It kept me quite busy. And it was on an entire uh, discipleship curriculum that I created. Um, put a lot of effort into that, so I feel good. And professionally, I work as a technical writer uh, here in the greater Seattle area. I typically work at various software companies, one of which will remain nameless. <laughs> um, but I always joke when people ask me what I do for a living, I say I write those manuals that you never read. That's right. Yeah. Well, that's good. Um, now, Passover wasn't all that long ago, uh, and you led a couple of Christian Passover celebrations, one of them with my help. Uh, tell us what that, what's that all about. What is a Passover Seder like, such as the ones that you led this year, and how'd they go? Well, I thought they went pretty well. Uh, I'll give you a description of a Seder in brief here. A Seder is basically both biblical and cultural and rabbinic sources. Uh, it's basically, Seder means order and order to the Passover. Uh, however, I also added a messianic perspective, since I also believe Jesus is the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant. Mm. A Seder involves the retelling of the Hebrew Exodus from Egypt, and a Messianic Seder also involves a retelling of the Last Supper for Jesus. We typically do the Lord's Supper at the meal as well. Well, I definitely think it went well, the one that I participated in, and I really appreciated it, uh, as did uh, the small group that, um, that joined us. So, Now, in your last appearance, we talked about the question, who is a Jew? We explained that the Bible defines a Jew as a natural descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that Gentile Christians are not in any sense spiritual Jews, which is, of course, a term that many haphazardly throw around. Today, we're going to ask a related question, which is, who is Israel? Or who are Israel? But before we offer what we think is the biblical answer to that question, what is the answer that many Christians, at least outside of modern dispensational circles, what is the answer that they might give? So a common view, uh, going all the way back to some of the early church fathers, is that the institution of the church has become Israel. 
or has replaced the Jews as the proper Israel. I'll quote author John E. Toes, his commentary on Romans from 2004, quote, Already in the second century, Justin Martyr argued that the church is Rachel, uh, the loved wife, who has displaced Leah, the first wife, and is the sole inheritor of the name and possession of Israel. Cyprian, in the third century AD, taught that the Gentiles, instead of the Jews, would attain the kingdom of heaven. John Calvin, who I like quite a bit, and most of his theological descendants argued that, quote, all Israel in Romans 11.26 means the church. In a variety of different ways, theologians since the second century have argued that the church is the new Israel, quote unquote, that has replaced uh, historic Israel as the people of God because Israel rejected God's Messiah and in fact crucified him, end quote. Hmm. Specifically, Justin Martyr uh, said in his dialogue with Trypho, written in around 160 AD, quote, for the true spiritual Israel um, are we who have been led to God through this crucified uh, Christ, end quote. And Justin Martyr is one of the earliest church fathers. However, it is interesting to note that before 160 AD, Israel was never identified with the church by any of the church fathers, nor was there any characterization of the church as the Israel of God. Uh, this is according to Dr. S. Lewis Johnson, who is a former professor of Greek and New Testament exegesis at Dallas Theological Seminary. Yeah. Well, but it sounds like there's some dissent here amongst Christians on the issue of Israel. Why, why do you think that it is? Why do you think that there's such a level of disagreement here? First of all, um, we need to understand that the Bible is a Hebrew book written entirely by Jews with some debate on Luke and written largely for Jews with some passages and books written for Gentiles as well. As many scholars know who study Chinese or Japanese literature, for example, you can't do justice to the source material by simply getting a word-for-word translation of the original text. You have to understand the, the zeitgeist of the people. You have to understand the way in which the culture thought to understand what they were communicating. In the context of the Bible, you have to understand Hebraic thought, even all the way through the New Testament. All of our manuscripts of the New Testament are in Greek for one simple reason. Greek was the lingua franca of the time. However, these were Jews coming from a Middle Eastern culture, an Hebraic mindset, and with thousands of years of psychocultural history behind them, but communicating in a language that was intended for a different audience, a different culture, if you will. So to compound it even further, uh, the early church fathers were all Gentiles and heavily influenced by the presence and I would say adoration of Greek philosophy, most mm. specifically Plato. In fact, one of the church fathers uh, specifically said that God's revelation to men were brought to us uh, through two people groups in word from the Jews, but in terms of interpretation from the Greeks, <laughs> who were both uh, polytheists and sodomites to boot. So in our modern multicultural age, we would probably laugh at this arrogant assumption, but this attitude was very common at the time. Yeah. Uh, that would be like, well, for example, imagine if uh, I used a French philosopher to help me interpret Japanese poetry. <laughs> and, uh, you know, furthermore, if the French philosopher had no knowledge of Japanese poetry, right. so it would make it even worse. I mean, can you imagine the odd interpretations I would come up with from that starting point? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so when we're talking about Hebraic thought, we need to understand that the Jewish thought patterns and processes had more in common with, well, the shores of China than with the shores of Scotland. Yeah. 
What I mean is that the, their concepts typically involved overlapping circles of meaning. This explains, for me anyway, why the term salvation in the New Testament can also be understood to mean sanctification. Alternately, why seed in Genesis could mean both the Jewish people or Jesus himself. Or in the Old Testament, we can see the same prophet may use the word spirit or soul interchangeably, even though some commentators believe they are always used exclusively. In other words, there is more room in Hebraic thought for both A and B type of thinking instead of either A or B. Yeah. Uh, furthermore, some terminology may not always be used in the same way consistently by the same author. So to be clear, this does not mean that Jews rejected absolutes or believed that there was no such thing as an absolute reality. Furthermore, I do believe that the biblical authors were not sloppy in their choice of words either. For example, salvation cannot also mean damnation. <laughs> and um, yeah, as we'll discuss later, Israel cannot also mean the church with a capital C, or should not mean it, based on our research. By contrast, Greek thought was very much about checkboxes and a clearer delineation between concepts and terminology. Hmm. This puts modern Christians at a double disadvantage. First of all, the early church fathers were steeped in a Greek worldview. And then secondarily, because the during the Age of Enlightenment in the 18th century, there was a revival of passion for, uh, for Greek philosophy. Essentially, uh, Western civilization is a Greco-Roman and a Germanic culture with a Hebrew book as its core spiritual foundation. Right. Uh, so misunderstandings here are to be expected, including beliefs, for example, in transubstantiation, uh, baptism of infants, purgatory, iconography, or intentionally syncretizing holidays with pagan celebrations. Without having Hebraic understanding of a Hebraic book, we are really rolling the dice in terms of exegesis, and you should expect to find uh, dozens of denominations and several cults, and that is exactly what we have today. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, I definitely agree. Um, we're st but still, we're going to try and overcome that problem with exegesis, and we're going to begin at the beginning. Not the beginning of creation, but the nation and people of Israel. In the same way that the definition of Jew begins with Abraham, like we talked about last, last episode, so too does the identity of Israel. Can tell us about that. Certainly. So in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Abraham was given several promises, although he was referred to as Abram at the time. He would be the head of a great nation, and he would also be a blessing to many nations. And in Genesis 15, it says his descendants would be as numerous as the stars, and there's also a land promise. He said, quote, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Hmm. Now, you, you mentioned that the first, the first of the promises that was given to Abraham was that he would become the head of a great nation. Uh, Genesis 17.3, however, has God saying to Abram, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. So does this mean that what was promised to Abraham was simply that he would be the father of many nations? Where is it that we get that he was promised specifically that he would father one nation? So uh, Abraham was promised that he himself would father a great uh, a great nation. In Genesis 12, 2, it says, and I will make of you a great nation. And in Genesis 18, 18, it says, seeing that Abraham sh uh, shall surely become a great and mighty nation. So here we see that Abraham is going to be the father of a specific singular uh, generation, uh, sorry, nation. Hmm. There's also a land promise. Uh, in Genesis 15, 18, it says, quote, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, 
quote, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt, or the great river, the river Euphrates. We read that earlier. Now, if all of Abraham was promised was to father a multitude of nations, then what sense does this make? How can a multitude of nations inherit this land? It would make more sense if this promise was for a specific nation rather than to many nations or to all of humanity. Yeah. And then also in Joshua 21:43 it says, quote, "Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land uh, that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and they settled there." So clearly the authors of the author of Joshua did not communicate that suddenly many nations were gathered there. Right. It was understood to be one nation. This is also reconfirmed uh, through Isaac and also through Jacob. We take a look at Genesis uh, chapter 26, verses 2 through 5, and also verse 24. It says, quote, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. End mm. quote. And I generally uh, quote incidentally from the ESV translation. And then we look at as well in Genesis 28, 13 through 15, it says, quote, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Here he's talking about Jacob. The land on which you lie I will give to you and your offspring. So we're talking about Jacob's offspring here. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad uh, to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. Hmm. So notice two things are being promised here. First of all, it says your offspring will inherit the land, and two, your offspring will bless the earth. This is a recapitulation of the Abrahamic covenant, or the Abram's promise that God made to Abraham. Furthermore, he establishes that the land is for the descendants of Jacob, and nowhere is the church referred to as a descendant of Jacob. Right. So the land promise and the blessings to the nations, uh, this is directly tied to the genetic lineage, and it is not tied simply to a people of faith. Right. Also, if you look in the New Testament, uh, this uh, concept is continued. If you look at Romans 9, verses 6 through 8, Paul says, quote, For not all who are descended from Israel uh, belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But, quote, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, end quote. So this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are uh, the children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as off, offspring, end quote. And that's uh, Romans 9, 6 through 8. Paul's argument here is that not all of Israel are children of God. However, the key to his argument is that the promise of a nation uh, called Israel were not to all of Abraham's descendants, but only through one of his children, namely Isaac. Yeah. So thus even Paul viewed the term Israel as being linked to lineage rather than faith. Right. Otherwise, the point of his entire argument falls flat. Let's also take a look in Romans 9, verses 3 through 5. Paul refers to unbelieving Jews as Israel. Uh, here he says, quote, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, 
the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises, end quote. So interestingly, the word is Israelite, Israelites, if that's how you pronounce it in Greek, <laughs> yeah. appears in the original Greek, it really does. So Paul is definitively speaking of unbelieving Jews here as Israelites. Yeah. Furthermore, let's look at Romans 9, 30 through 31. Quote, what shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. End quote. So here we see Paul mentioning Gentiles who are believers, that they have attained righteousness through faith. Now this would be the opportune time to teach that they are the true Israel, and yet he does not. Yeah. Further, he does mention Israel only. Uh, he does mention Israel. Uh, it's just that he uses that term to refer to unbelieving Jews, <laughs> descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah. If there's any sense that Paul has taught that Israel is the church, um, which would include Gentiles, then he's confusing his readers by contrasting Gentiles with Israel. Yeah. If you believe that Paul is using the term, quote, Israel as a colloquialism, for example, that was common at the time, I've heard people say that, you then have to answer the question, why would an apostle of God use uh, terms that would only confuse his readers and endanger their understanding of a proper doctrine? If Israel is being redefined in any way, or if his readers have an unbiblical understa uh, understanding, wouldn't he go out of his way to ensure that there is no confusion? Now, without having warrant, we should assume that there was no confusion, there was no need, I should say, for a clarification because Paul was not trying to establish a redefinition of the of the term Israel. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. Um, I mean, so, so what we're saying is God promised to Abraham not just that his descendants would comprise many nations, but that he would father one specific nation, and we see this reconfirmed through Isaac and through Jacob. In fact, the, the name of this nation that we've been talking about, Israel, that name is first used of Jacob, isn't it? You know, the origins of the term Israel... It does, in fact, start with Jacob. Uh, Genesis 32, 28 says, quote, Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And also in Genesis 35, 10, it says, quote, And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And so he called his name Israel. Well, so, did the promise then of a nation continue to be reconfirmed only through particular descendants of Jacob, the way that it was with Isaac as opposed to Ishmael and, and Jacob as opposed to Esau? You know, all over the Bible, Israelites are referred to as descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And no prophet or apostle feels the need to clarify which of Jacob's sons carried on the lineage of Israel. It's understood by all the authors that all of Jacob's sons are Israelites. If I'm wrong, this should be easy to disprove. If you do a search for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you will find that in every instance there is no fourth person ever mentioned in this list. Yeah, that's definitely true. Now, it might seem to some that we've gone, I guess, a little overboard or, or maybe we've unnecessarily spent too much time on this. Have we, have we belabored the point? Have, have we gone overboard? You know, I don't think we have gone overboard, uh, but the reason why we went to such great lengths here is because there's a long-standing tradition uh, in the church, and I said this earlier, to reinterpret the term Israel as a reference to anyone who believes in the God of the Bible, whether they're Jew or Gentile. Yeah. In fact, many will go back into the Old Testament and misinterpret many verses as a result. 
I've heard some say, I can see why this definition, I've actually heard people say to me this, I've, I can see why this definition of Israel is confusing, because it seems to be so closely linked to a Jewish lineage. But that's purely coincidental. <laughs> yeah. However, I think we've proven that it is not coincidental, but it is expressly manifest throughout the Bible, and by God's design as well, that only the genetic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are Israel. Yeah, definitely. Well, so about this promise that God made to Abraham, did he make it to Abraham um, as a result, I guess, of some act of faithfulness on Abraham's part or because he lived a holy life or something like that? I mean, did Abraham on some level merit or deserve uh, the, the promise that a nation would arise from him? You know, that's a good question. It does touch on another belief that is popular within the church, and that is that the idea that the term Israel is conditional upon faith. And so if someone does not believe, they're therefore no longer a part of Israel. You know, Genesis 11 goes through Abraham's lineage, and it really makes no mention of him in terms of his life or the choices he's made as a person. And so when we launch into Genesis 12, before he's ever challenged to sacrifice Isaac, God promises that he would make him into a great nation, having absolutely nothing to do with any action on his part. You know, furthermore, in Titus 1-2, it even says that when God makes a promise, he, since he cannot lie, his promise is irrevocable. Yeah. Yeah, well, but if God didn't make this promise because of Abraham's faithfulness or holiness or whatever, why did he? Did the scriptures tell us why God uh, promised to make Abraham into a great nation? Ultimately, Israel comes from Jacob, and God chose Jacob having nothing to do with any faith. Romans 9-11 says, quote, um, Though they, that is Jacob and Esau, were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, end quote. You see, God's promises to Israel are unconditional. Instead, God chose them so that they would be faithful to him. For example, Genesis eighteen nineteen, and also Deuteronomy twenty six eighteen as well. So what you're saying, if I've understood you, is it's not that God chose the Israelites because of their faithfulness to him or anything like that. He chose them in order to be faithful to him. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Well, so in choosing Israel uniquely among all the nations as his own people, was God's purpose, uh, was his design limited only to that nation? I, I guess what I'm asking is, was God basically just writing off the rest of the Gentile world by choosing Israel from among them? No. See, God said uh, to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, quote, all of the families of the earth will be blessed, which God repeats in 22, 18, 26, 4, and 28, 14 in Genesis. In Galatians 3, Paul says, quote, the scripture uh, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, quote, all the nations will be blessed in you, end quote. So God chose a nation to bring the Messiah into the world, and through faith in him, the entire world can be saved from their sin. Consequently, God was thinking about the salvation of all who would believe, whether they're Jew or Gentile, when they chose, when he chose Abraham in Genesis. Yeah, definitely. Well, now here, here's a question, though. I've heard this said before. Joshua 21.45 says, Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. And there's something similar repeated in Joshua 23.14. So, you know, certainly Israel had become a great nation. They had, in fact, been given the land that they were promised. So wasn't God's promise kept then? Or, or was the promise to Abraham that the great nation would be a nation perpetually? 
So uh, the promise was that Israel would remain a nation forever. And take a look at First Chronicles 16, 15 through 18. It says, quote, Remember his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed as a statute to Jacob as an everlasting covenant to Israel, saying, quote, To you I will give the land of Canaan and as your uh, portion for it and inheritance, end quote. And incidentally, I know that uh, you uh, feel the, the millennium, thousand years, is not a literal 1,000 years. So interestingly here we see for a thousand generations. Does mm. that mean that the covenant is only to be kept for a literal thousand generations? The verse itself says it's an everlasting covenant. So this would be an example where the word thousand is used in hyperbole, not to be taken literally. Yeah. This was said, uh, uh, this quote was said well after the time of Joshua and the passages that you just read. And then of course there's Jeremiah 31, 36 through 37, and Jeremiah 33, 24 through 26. That's one of my favorite verses about Israel. Uh, those say that only if God's fixed order of day and night were to cease, and that only if the heavens were could be measured and the foundations of the earth fully searched out, only then would Israel cease being a nation. But the point is that none of this would happen, since hence God says, quote, I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them, end quote. So, yes, it is true that in Joshua's time, God's promise to Abraham was fulfilled. But because the promise was that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be the nation of Israel forever, there will never be a time when the promise of Abraham ceases to be applicable. Yeah. You know, also to make a connection here, once uh, once we are resurrected with a new heavens and a new earth, then we could say that all of his promises have been fulfilled. <laughs> yeah. However, that would mean that therefore we might die, or perhaps Jesus will no longer reign, or that the promises might fade away or be replaced because they were, quote, fulfilled. You see, it's, un it's understood that this eternal promise, namely one of eternal life, is an ongoing promise. So when these promises were fulfilled in the time of Joshua, this does not necessarily cancel the permanency of the promise. Yeah. There is only one Christian apologist I know of who teaches that one of God's promises to Israel were done away with in the time of Joshua, and that is Hank Hanegraaff. Now, sometimes called the Bible Answer Man. Yeah, I'm very familiar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, I like a lot of his exegesis in many areas. Uh, but in this area, I feel he takes a pretty radical approach to these verses in, in that he believes that God's promise to Abraham's descendants for a land was only to attain that land and not to keep it or to protect it or that, uh, that they could regain it if it was lost due to disobedience. Right. Um, that he does not feel those promise, that this promise applied to regaining the land or protection um, while in the land. So this goes directly against my Bible verses that I gave earlier, including 1 Chronicles 16, 15 through 18, and Jeremiah 29, through four, uh, 29 14. You know, frankly, it saddens me when I see an apologist of his caliber make an error of that nature, especially when it's so easily disproven. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I, I've appreciated Hank Hanegraaff, and he was instrumental in my uh, conversion to preterism, if you will. Um, but it really is, like you said, saddening that somebody who is able to exegete certain passages so very well um, would seem to do so poorly with, with this one. But, but here's the thing. So a Abraham was promised a great nation that would remain forever, but you said that God chose Israel to be a holy nation and to keep his commandments. And that raises one final question. 
Does this mean that the provisions of his covenant with Abraham were conditioned or contingent upon Israel's faithfulness to him? In, in, in other words, if they didn't do what God chose them to do, would the promise be made void? Well, let's see. In scriptures, Genesis 59, it says that Abraham was told to get, this is a very important passage, he was told to get some animals and to cut them in half, and then Abraham, well, he falls asleep at the wheel. <laughs> he falls asleep, and then God sends a manifestation of himself to pass between the pieces, and then he makes a covenant with Abraham. In ancient Near Eastern uh, covenant-making ceremonies, animals were slaughtered and then cut into two, and typically both parties would walk between the pieces of the animal, signifying that if the terms are broken, that what happened to these animals would happen to them. And that is death. But here with Abraham, it is only God who walks between the pieces. Now, this means that if God were to fail to meet his promise, then he would have to cease to exist. <laughs> For example, in Jeremiah 34, 18 through 19, God says that there are men who transgress the covenant that they made with God. Quote, when they cut the calf in two and pass between its parts. What this means is that this tradition signified a covenant, and here we have a biblical example of this tradition. Yeah. Lastly, in Genesis, it says that Abram fell asleep, but this sleep is a special type of sleep, like a dead man, if you will. This Hebrew word for sleep is a special word, which almost always means that God is the source of the sleep, and several commentators agree with this view. Thus, Abraham had literally nothing to do with this covenant. God wanted him completely incapacitated, completely yeah. out of commission in regards to the covenantal promise, thus guaranteeing that Abraham would have nothing to do with the keeping of this covenant. So therefore, the covenant's promises are not conditional upon the obedience of Abraham or his descendants. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, what, what a... Um what a testimony it is to the, uh, to, the, to the faithfulness of God. You know, the reason I think that we as Christians can, can, uh, can believe in the promises of God toward us is because he's a keeper of his promises to his people, Israel. Um, so I, I just find that really powerful. Now, we, we could say a lot more, but, but I think that this pretty well makes our case. And, and let me just summarize it one more time. God made a promise to Abraham among other things, that he would make Abraham into a great nation through Isaac specifically and then all of Jacob's descendants. It, it, the promise wasn't conditioned upon any faithfulness of Abraham or his descendants. It was unconditional and it was everlasting. Israel would remain a nation forever. But we, did, but we said earlier that many Christians believe that the church is in some sense the true or spiritual Israel. Whether that's because the church has replaced Israel or whether Gentile Christians become citizens of Israel alongside believing Jews. Either, either way, what they think is that it's legitimate to apply the designation Israel to the church somehow. Now, in a moment, I'm, I'm going to once again, like I did last time, present you with some of the common challenges to our position. But first, just speaking in general, does the New Testament seem to use the name Israel in this way, uh, either as referring to the church or to Jewish and Gentile believers alike? So the, the New Testament does not uh, use the term Israel interchangeably with the church. However, we do have some new designations that did not exist in the Old Testament. For example, the term the body of Christ is used to describe both Jews and Gentiles who believed in Jesus after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. Now, while this a body of followers uh, was a mixed multitude, including the remnant from Israel, they were all on equal footing with God 
Now, this joining of Jew and Gentile on equal footing was the mystery spoken of in Ephesians uh, 3, 4 through 6, which was not revealed in the Old Testament, and definitely a new designation in the New Testament. Yeah. While humans have always been saved through faith, it's not until the new covenant that we have new, a new term for a new community uh, known as the body of Christ, or the bride of Christ, or the church. Yeah. However, nowhere is the church now regarded as, quote, the true Israel, or a, quote, spiritual Israel, or, quote, the true Jews, as we covered in the last podcast. In fact, um, the culmination of God's promises to Israel will be fulfilled at some future point, even uh, as Paul says in Romans 11.26. You know, to be clear, the term Israel is used exactly 73 times in the New Testament, depending upon, of course, the manuscripts that you use. We don't have time to go through all of them today, but I would encourage your listeners to do a word study for themselves. However, what they will find is that of those 73, only three are used to defend the belief that Israel has been redefined to mean the church. Only three of them (laughs) could possibly be used to support their case. And so... When we're looking for a systematic study, a systematic theology on Israel, which is what Israelology is, the evidence should weigh heavily in favor of the majority of verses rather than reinterpreting a bulk of Scripture in light of three possible verses. Yes. Now, furthermore, we'll see later in this podcast that these three verses just don't serve as the evidence many think they do. Especially since the uh, the early church were largely Jews, you would expect, for example, you'd expect long chapters in Hebrews or maybe even an entire book unto itself, uh, for example, to address some new teaching that the term Israel has been redefined. Yeah. And yet you simply don't see it anywhere. Yeah. So this teaching would be a radical departure in thought from the Old Testament, and I should expect to see many passages to support it. And yet proponents can only come up with three verses for me to address? <laughs> yeah. uh, even if they had ten verses, that's still too small to make a case in light of the other dozens and dozens of verses throughout the entire Bible in both the New and the Old Testament. So, in conclusion to your question, I don't believe the New Testament authors used the name Israel in such a way that would blur the line between the church and Israel. They used it in the same way it has always been used to refer to the nation of Descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, well, you know, I definitely agree with you, but let's shift gears and let's look at some of the arguments that um, critics of our position often make. Um, We're going to start with the New Testament's use of the Greek word rendered church. Uh, For example, Acts 7.38 says that Moses was in the congregation, and he there uses the word for church. Uh, Hebrews 2.12 uses it too when it quotes Psalm 22.2, which of course was written long before the church was around. The word is used throughout the Septuagint, even, including 1 Chronicles 13.2, to refer to the assembly of Israel. So isn't the church of the New Testament the same as the assembly of Israel that we just looked at? This argument falls under the logic category of uh, what I call fallacy by equivocation. Just because a word means something in one place uh, does not mean that it must mean that wherever it's used. The word just means called out ones and refers to a congregation or assembly of people. But when we're talking about the church with a capital C, we're talking about something specific, the body of Christ. 
Just because the body of Christ is called the assembly, using the same Greek word as is used of Israel, does this does not mean that the two are one and the same. Yeah. You know, also important is that the Septuagint is not the original Hebrew. So anytime we are using the Septuagint, we are using a translation of the Hebrew, and our conclusion should take this into account as well. There are always limitations on language whenever we make a translation, and the use of the original language is always preferred, which is why I use textual commentary when studying the Bible. Okay. Yeah, I definitely agree. Now, we talked about the Abrahamic promise being perpetual and unconditional, but what about what about Hebrews 8.13, which says that the new covenant makes the old one obsolete? Doesn't this mean that the covenant with Abraham is replaced by the new covenant? Well, first of all, every time the language speaks of an end to the Old Covenant, it's referring specifically to the Mosaic Covenant. There were several covenants in the Old Testament, and the Mosaic was just one of them. Some may disagree. I've known some to disagree with that. But when they do, I usually point them to the covenant that God made with Noah, where God promised that he would never flood the earth again. Now, is is (laughs) is that the Old Covenant that God's done away with? Right. Of course not. Um, So we do, in fact, have multiple covenants in the Old Testament, and we need to understand uh, what the Jews meant when they spoke of the Old Covenant. They were not speaking of all the promises in the Old Testament, or all the covenants, but only of the one in question, which was clearly the Mosaic one. For example, in Hebrews 8.5, the author is clearly talking about the law of Moses, and the passage from Jeremiah, which he quotes, is contrasting the new covenant with the covenant God made, having taken the people out of Egypt. So the covenant which was being made obsolete here was the Mosaic covenant, not the uh, Abrahamic one. Okay, but what about that passage that the author of Hebrews quotes, Jeremiah 31? Um, It says that the new covenant would be made with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Now, since it's the church, as we know, Gentiles included, that partake of the new covenant, and not unbelieving Jews over the past 2,000 years, doesn't this make the church the house of Judah and the house of Israel? Well... The text of Jeremiah here does not say uh, that the covenant would not be made with any Gentiles. Right. So when we look at Romans 11, we see that the Gentiles would be grafted into the natural olive shoot, which represents the blessings through Abraham. Also, Jeremiah was not writing to a mixed multitude, but to the Jews. So I think he was simply saying that Israel will be offered a new covenant And then later we see that the Gentiles could be grafted into that covenant, even though it was originally intended for Israel. Yeah. So of those 73 places in the New Testament where the name Israel is used, you mentioned that there are three where some have tried to argue that something other than the nation of Israel is in view. One of those is Romans 9, where Paul writes that they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, and that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of uh, promise are regarded as descendants. Doesn't this mean that physical descent is not what makes one part of Israel, but that it depends on whether one is a child of promise? Um, Well, Romans 9 is often used as a proof text for this belief, but uh, if you simply look look a little later in the chapter, Paul uses the name Israel in verses uh, 27 and 31 to refer to the nation of Israel, only a remnant of which would be saved. Uh, Secondly, Paul is saying that Only some of those descended from Israel have special designation called the children of promise or the children of God, as it says in verse 8. 
In other words, not all of Israel is a part of the, quote, one new man in which Jewish and Gentile believers are together in Christ. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You know, you mentioned Romans 11 a little bit ago, where Paul gives an analogy of an olive tree. Uh, in this analogy, Jews are represented by branches which are broken off, and then Gentile believers are represented by branches from a wild olive tree, which are grafted into place where the Jews have been broken off. Now, this appears to some to be saying that Gentile believers are grafted into Israel, and therefore that the church is Israel. What do you make of that? Well, Paul's olive tree analogy, as well as chapters 9, 10, and 11 as a whole, have been misunderstood, even overlooked, actually, by many Christians. Yeah. Some have even called it uh, like a parenthesis between chapters 8 and 12, I guess kind of like a small commercial break or something. <laughs> yeah. This is, uh, this is really unfortunate because it's incredibly deep and rich with meaning and it is absolutely vital uh, to the argument that Paul has been making. And we'll probably get into that uh, more in future episodes together, hopefully, if you'll have me back. Oh, definitely. <laughs> okay. In the meantime, to properly understand the meaning of the olive tree analogy, I think we need to understand two key things first. First, uh, the illustration that he's giving here is not primarily about national identity, uh, but about receiving blessing. Hmm. This is why the wild branches grafted into it, uh, quote, became partakers with the natural branches of the rich root, end quote. And, quote, it is not the branches grafted in who supports the root, but the root supports the branches grafted in, end quote. And notice that the branches broken off do not cease to be Israel. Hmm. Uh, in verse 25, Paul says that a, quote, partial hardening has happened to Israel, end quote. Again, um, being defined as Israel is not conditional upon faith. Right. Um, doesn't, just because you're Israel doesn't mean you're going to heaven or going, you're going to be saved, uh, but it doesn't mean that you're therefore not Israel just because you don't believe. Sure. So if the branches are broken off... Uh, if these branches that are broken off are not Israel, then such a statement wouldn't really make sense. So Gentiles do not become Israel. They become recipients of blessing, which were formerly exclusive only to Israel. And this is why Paul writes in Ephesians 3 that, um, quote, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, end quote. Yeah. Secondly, what exactly is the root of the tree. Most would say Christ, because elsewhere in Scripture he is described as the root of Jesse. But in these verses, it's clear from the illustration that Gentiles are recipients of the Abrahamic covenant. Paul says in Galatians 3, quote, The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, quote, All the nations will be blessed in you, end quote. Abraham was promised that in him the nations would be blessed. And Paul understands, uh, understands that, as being that, specifically as being the blessing of salvation by faith in Christ, which Gentiles partake in, of course. Gentiles are grafted into the tree in Paul's analogy, but this does not mean the church is Israel. It means that Gentile believers in Christ are blessed through the promise made to the root which is Abraham, along with the remnant of Israel, Paul goes on to talk about. The reason why Paul refers to them as a wild olive shoot, that is the Gentiles, as a wild olive shoot, is because Gentiles were not the original receivers of the Abrahamic blessing. And as, as Jesus said, quote, salvation comes from the Jews. 
end quote, which he says in John 4, 22. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure we'll discuss this passage further in, uh, in later episodes. Multiple of them, because like I said, this, this, uh, this whole passage um, is deep and rich with meaning, and, and we're going to see a number of different things that play out as a result. Well, let's, let's move on then to Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, where Paul says that Gentiles were formerly excluded uh, from what some translations call the commonwealth of Israel, but that in Christ they've been brought near now that the wall dividing them has been torn down. Doesn't this mean that Gentiles, that, that something which was separating Gentiles from Israel has been removed so that Gentiles are now part of Israel? Well, if you look at verse 12... Um, Gentiles are said to have been formerly, quote, strangers in, uh, to the covenants of promise, end quote, and, and that they were, quote, without God. And Paul says that in Christ, Gentiles were, quote, brought near. However, um, brought near to what exactly? Right. That's really the question. Well, first of all, if he means brought near to Israel, this does not mean necessarily that suddenly Gentiles become a part of Israel. Sure. But, you know, I don't think that Paul is talking here about being brought near to Israel. Take a look at Acts 2.39, where Peter says to the Jews, quote, The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself, end quote. In Peter's case, uh, where are those who are, quote, far off called to? They're called to God himself. Yeah. So I, I think in Ephesians 2, Paul is saying that Gentiles have been brought near to God. And after all, Paul goes on in that passage to say that Christ, that or I should say that in Christ, the two groups become one new man. He also says that Gentiles are, quote, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, end quote. So here we, we actually have two new designations for the church. Quote, fellow citizens with the saints and, quote, members of the household of God, end quote. So, uh, therefore, Gentiles are not brought into an institution which is old or already existed. They, along with the faithful Jews, the, G the Gentiles, comprise the church which began in Christ. And, you know, as a side note, I also believe that uh, Moses and Abraham were members of the church. But uh, we will discuss this in a later podcast. Definitely. What about Galatians 3.14? Um, there Paul says that the promise was made to Abraham and his seed. And then Paul labors to demonstrate that what was referred to there was not many descendants, but to Christ. Doesn't this mean that the promises to Abraham are fulfilled in Christ? First of all, we need to understand the, quote, seed that he's referring to. Now, in Galatians 3.14, he's talking about a blessing coming to the Gentiles. There are several places in Genesis where, quote, seed is used. The Hebrew word here is zerah, and in Genesis chapters 12 through 17, zerah, uh, there are several promises given to Abraham, including the land promise, also a promise of biological descendants, and an everlasting covenant with his biological descendants. But the, uh, the context of the blessings, uh, the blessing in Galatians 3 has nothing to do with land, or about the number of biological children that the church will have. So the most logical cross-reference here has got to be the seed spoken of in Genesis 22.18. Now in Genesis 22.18, there is a promise that in Abraham's seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And I, I think Paul says this is referring to Christ. Thus, this passage isn't talking about the promise to Abraham for one specific nation, which we've already looked at. 
and therefore this verse cannot be used as evidence for a redefinition of Israel. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, we've got a few more to look at. Um, they're the ones which I think perhaps are most challenging to our position. Um, we're going to look at James. Uh, he opens his epistle by saying that he wrote it to the twelve tribes of Israel, who were or to the twelve tribes who were disp- uh, dispersed abroad. Um, Peter does something similar. He says in First Peter two nine, "You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession." So the question I have for you is, doesn't James's use of 12 tribes and Peter's identification of his readers as a chosen race and a holy nation, doesn't this indicate that all Christians are, are Israel who formerly went by those designations? Well, I can understand uh, why there would be some confusion here. Uh, I actually think that, this, that what you've given here would be a viable interpretation given an unfounded presupposition, namely that this epistle is written to Jewish and Gentile believers. However, why should that assumption be warranted? You see, both James and Peter open their epistles with greetings to the diaspora, the scattering of Jews outside the land. Now, people often assume that the audience for the New Testament is always both Jews and Gentiles, and therefore conclude that this dispersion language means the church is Israel, but I think this is backwards. The dispersion language here, which is clearly a reference to the Jewish diaspora, should cause us to conclude that the audience is Jewish believers. And let me give you some specifics here. Hmm. Now, Peter goes out of his way in uh, chapter 2, verse 12, to encourage his audience to exercise good behavior amongst, quote, the Gentiles. Now, by the way, the term Gentiles in the New Testament never refers to unbelievers who are Jews. (laughs) If it did, this would certainly lend credence to a redefinition of the term Jew, which we discussed in an earlier podcast. So he is writing to an audience dispersed among the, quote, Gentiles, living as aliens or exiles. Well, if his readers were Gentiles, then they wouldn't be living as aliens or exiles. They would be living in their own native countries. Yeah. Uh, Thus, the audience is clearly Jewish, specifically Jewish believers in Jesus living outside the land of Israel. Also, if you look in verse 10, he quotes Hosea 1.10, where it's said of Israel that in the place where uh, once it was said of them, quote, you are not a people, it will be said of them, quote, you are sons of the living God, as well as Hosea 2.23, where it is Israel who once did not receive mercy, but later does. Now, in Hosea, there is nothing in the context of Hosea that Paul is quoting. Uh, There's nothing there that uh, God is speaking to Gentiles, saying that they were once not a people, uh, and now they are. This is yet another promise to a Hebrew audience that Peter is invoking for his Jewish readers. Peter is not speaking of Gentiles as if they're the people who once were not a people. He's speaking of Israel who had been punished for disobedience, but now the remnant is the recipient of mercy. And in 1 Peter 4, he says to the Jewish believers reading his letter that they should no longer carry out the desires of the Gentiles among whom they lived. Now, clearly this epistle is written to the Jews in the diaspora, Jews scattered amongst the Gentiles outside of the land. So no, Peter is not applying Old Testament language previously used of Israel and applying it now suddenly to Gentiles. He's using this language of Israel because he's writing to Jews. You know, you also need to remember that uh, both Peter and James had a calling to the Jews, and whereas Paul had a unique mission to the Gentiles that the other apostles did not. 
For example, in Galatians 2.9, Paul says that he and Barnabas were to go to the Gentiles, but that James and Peter were to go to the Jews or the circumcised. In fact, it directly says in Galatians 2.7, quote, Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, end quote. Thus, I would assume that any scripture from James or Peter is probably written to Jewish believers unless explicitly evident uh, or unless explicit evidence is given otherwise. Sure. Now, as for the passage in James, it's clear from his opening that he is writing to the 12 tribes, and nowhere is the church ever referred to as the 12 tribes. Furthermore, he refers to them who are, quote, dispersed abroad, which again is language used to speak of Jews in the diaspora. And lastly, in James 5.12, he tells his readers, quote, Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Now, this ought to remind us of an ongoing problem that the Jews were having. In Matthew 5.34-35, and also in Matthew 23.16-22, we see that it was the Pharisees who were going around making false promises, thinking they could get away with it so long as they swore by the right thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, this was clearly a problem within the Jewish community. So here James commands his readers to avoid swearing altogether and to let one's yes be yes and no be no, which is what Christ said. So James here is addressing the same problem that Jesus addressed within the Jewish community, which was to play swearing games to get out of, to get out of obligations, essentially. Yeah. So to sum up, Peter and James' use of language formally designating Israel and applying it to his readers does not mean the church is Israel because they were writing to Jewish believers and not to the Gentile and Jewish church at large. Mm-hmm. Okay, but but what about Philippians 3.3 3, uh, where Paul seems to say that Christians are the, quote, true circumcision, apparently in contrast with the false circumcision, which is unbelieving Jews. What, what, what is If Christians are the true circumcision, doesn't that make the church Israel? Well, first of all, we need to establish that Paul makes a designation between himself and his readers. Take a look in verse 1. He speaks of, quote, you, presumably the plural you, that is the church at Philippi. And then in verse 3, he speaks of we, and in verse 17 as well. And therefore, the, the term we, spoken of in verse 3, that is, we are the true circumcision, should not be assumed by the reader to include the readers, who were all Gentiles. But that doesn't mean that everywhere he uses we or our, it can't include his audience, such as in verse 20. It just shouldn't be assumed that we always includes the readers. Hmm. To determine if the we in verse 3 includes his audience, let's look briefly at Romans 2. In our last podcast together, now we established that Paul is saying here that one who is a Jew outwardly isn't necessarily one inwardly, and that circumcision of the flesh doesn't necessarily mean one has been circumcised of the heart. But as we saw, Paul had in mind those who are Jews outwardly. So the, quote, true circumcision is not necessarily any believer in Christ, Jew or Gentile, but rather Jews who are circumcised of the heart like Paul was. Hmm. Our listeners can refer back to that podcast uh, for details on that discussion. So back in Philippians, notice that Paul doesn't write, quote, he does not write, he does not say, quote, you are the true circumcision. He doesn't. He says, quote, we are the true circumcision, meaning the Jewish apostles of Christ and their true faith in the original gospel, that which was of, quote, first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. 
Therefore, Paul is not contrasting his reader's identity with the false circumcision. Rather, he is contrasting his teaching with the false teaching he wants his readers to reject. Thus, those Jews offering a false gospel are not the true circumcision, but rather the apostles of Christ who were Jews, they are the true circumcision. Yeah, I definitely agree. But this does lead us to one last passage. The passage which perhaps more than any other seems to lend support to the idea that the church is somehow the true or spiritual Israel. Uh, That passage being Galatians 6.16. There Paul says, Peace and mercy be upon those who will walk by this rule and upon the Israel of God. Now, isn't the whole church, which is made up of both Jews and Gentiles who walk by the rule that Paul talks about there, uh, isn't the church then the Israel of God? Well, first let's look at the word for and. Uh, I don't mean to be uh, be too debating here, <laughs> debateful. I know that we have presidents that get into the right, <laughs> debating right. of one word. But let's take a look at that word, the word and, uh, as in and the Israel of God. In order to believe that the Israel of God is referring to the church, the and must be understood to be translated even. Hmm. However, this is only translated as even by the translators of the Amplified Bible or the 1984 translation of the NIV. Other translations either uh, use the word and uh, as it's typically rendered, or they paraphrase it to support the meaning of even, avoiding a literal translation altogether. You know, out of over 9,000 times that the Greek word is used in the New Testament, the King James translates it as the word even only 1% of the time. It is therefore a rare usage of the word and some dispute if it even carries that meaning at all. So given the overwhelming evidence that Israel is not synonymous with the church, the best translation would be the NASB, or the New American Standard Version, which renders it, and upon the Israel of God. Now, this would suggest that Paul is talking about two people groups here, and not one. Well, secondly, in verse 13 and 14, Paul is contrasting the Judaizers with himself, and not with his readers, meaning that the Israel of God that he's contrasting with the Judaizers are the Jewish apostles, which include himself. Hmm. Lastly, in verse 15, Paul has two groups of people in mind, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And so it makes sense that in verse 16, he has two groups of people as well. Uh, You have uncircumcised believers and circumcised believers. So I'm going to take a license here and paraphrase a bit. It's Paul is saying, being a Jew or being a Gentile does not count for anything, for we are a new creation. And so there should be peace and mercy towards Gentile believers and also to Jewish believers. Yeah. So finally, as I want to also remind our listeners, as we said earlier, Dr. S. Lewis Johnson, a former professor of Greek and New Testament exegesis at Dallas Theological Seminary, said that before 160 A.D., Israel was never identified with the church by any of the church fathers, and nor was there any characterization of the church as the Israel of God. Justin Martyr appears to be the first to put this idea forward in his dialogue with Trypho, which was written around 160 AD. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, if basically the New Testament, in particular this passage, is redefining what Israel means, that would be such a radical, um, uh, such a radical teaching that that you would find this language somewhere, you know, earlier than a hundred years after Paul wrote. So I think that's a really good argument. 
Well, th those are those are really all the arguments that I've found, um, which I've seen people use to uh, to argue that the church is Israel. And I think that, as we've seen, none of them support their case. The church began after the ascension of Christ, and the New Testament authors continued to use the word Israel to refer to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that great nation which, God promised Abraham, would never cease being a nation because it is founded upon an unconditional covenant. I, I think that's very clear. But, <clears throat> but what does this mean? Are, are we saying that God... that he loves Jews more than Gentiles somehow, or that Jews are saved without accepting Christ? Not at all. Uh, all humans, uh, according to the Bible, all humans must accept Jesus as their Savior, their Lord and God, in order to attain eternal life. Uh, Jews in Christ are no better than Gentiles, and there is no preference in God's sight. Uh, there's no second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. Well, I do have one final question for you then. We talked last episode about the fact that questions like these are important, if for no other reason than that it's in the Bible. Um, but in addition to that, there's another reason why I, in particular, care so much about this issue. As you know, many of my listeners and I are preterists, and it frustrates a lot of us that so many Christians won't even seem to give our position even the remotest of consideration. Now, you and I have discussed something several times over recent months, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if I've understood you correctly, um, the fact that so few people in the preterist community seem to have a biblical view of Israel is something of a concern for you and for many others. And, and maybe uh, that explains in part why it is that we preterists find ourselves so frustrated. C can you explain that concern? Sure. You know, I've spoken with many Christians about uh, amillennialism, and a common concern is that amillennialists take Israel as an allegory uh, for the church. I don't see how these two ideas are logically connected, but they are certainly correlated among uh, amillennialists. I do see Israel as a type or shadow for the church, but I do not see it as an allegory. Hmm. Premillennialists take the millennium as a literal 1,000 years, as you know, and they also take Israel as a literal nation to the literal descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as I do. When they see amillennialists take the millennium as an indefinite period of time, it just seems par for the course that they would see Israel as a mixed multitude of Jews and Gentiles. Yeah. Uh, from a premillennialist perspective, amillennialists, uh, and I would include preterists, see allegory and analogy under every rock. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm not justifying their perception entirely, but I do think they have a point. You see, once the Pandora's box is open for an idea, sometimes people take it to an extreme. Now, that box could be the use of allegory or the assumption that everything should be interpreted in a literal wooden sense. Yeah. So, first of all, I don't see why amillennialists, including preterists, assume that Israel is an allegory for the church. And secondly, I don't understand why these two views are so highly correlated, because I, I don't see the causation here. Yeah, neither do I. Lastly... Now, if there's room for a dispensational view on Israel among amillennialists, then they need to get the word out about their views. See, I can tell you from personal experience and from discussions with many futurists that the traditional amillennial view on Israel is a major stumbling block for any discussion on eschatology. Israelology is a showstopper on eschatology for many premillennialists, and so... I, I think the onus of responsibility is on the preterists like yourself to rethink their views on Israel and to verify if God has really redefined it to mean the church. Or you need to show how the traditional view, the traditional amillennial view on Israel, 
is somehow critical for your view on eschatology. Now, personally, I see them as modular concepts that are not dependent on each other. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I don't think that they're dependent on each other at all. And uh, quite frankly, I'm as I guess, stunned as you are that they seem so correlated. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely want to get uh, the word out about their views. You know, I, I would be the first person to stand up and say that just because of its implications on Israel, that shouldn't mean that it, uh, sh that shouldn't cause a premillennialist or a futurist to completely disregard uh, the amillennial or, pre or preterist views. However, I do think it's important that um, that we realize just how much of a stumbling block, as you put it, uh, the traditional view on Israel is to dispensationalists, to futurists. Um, because, like I said, I think that it plays a large part in why it is that our views are so round, uh, just totally dismissed out of hand. So I think it's really important that at the very least, we understand what our view on Israel, um, how that how that impacts the way that our view on eschatology is received. So that if, if uh, so that, you know, it's okay, I shouldn't say it's okay, if you ultimately come to the conclusion that Israel has changed definition, at least make sure that you've got good reason for it and don't just follow the party line, so to speak, because you're you're going to prevent people from accepting your view of eschatology, which is obviously very dear to uh, to we amillennialists and preterists. So, anyway, well, I want to thank you so much for your time, David. Thank you. Yeah, this has been very helpful. Uh, I hope my listeners feel the same way. I'm going to include some links in the show notes to things like uh, uh, contrast between Hebrew and Greek thought. I'll include a, a diagram or two that sort of explain what we view the relationship being between Israel and the church. And I hope that my listeners will check that out. And I hope that they'll also look forward to part three uh, as much as as much as I'm going to look forward to. You know, I don't know what we're going to talk about next time, but we've got a whole bunch of things we do want to talk about. So, yeah, yeah we'll look forward to that. So thanks again for your time. Thanks so much, Chris. It's always a blessing to be able to, to do this with you. All right. Bye-bye. So there you go. There's why I think that this issue of Israel is related to the Herald Camping fiasco from over this weekend. Um, and I hope that if you're a preterist or an amillennialist like I am uh, and you're listening, I would hope that you would reconsider your view of Israel if you hold to something um, more akin to the view that my friend David and I were critiquing. Um, because I think that if if you uh, if, if you if your view changes of Israel and you begin to hold the view that my friend and I do, I think that your eschatology is going to be given more a better a more fairer shake <laughs> a, mo uh, a more fair shake uh, by dispensationalists. Um, and on the other hand, I think that if you're a dispensationalist and you've historically rejected preterism or amillennialism on the grounds that it uh, has an unbiblical view of Israel. I would hope that you would reconsider your eschatology, because I'd like to think that we've been able to show here, given that I'm a preterist and an amillennialist, that Israelology is not um, bound together with eschatology as tightly as history would seem to suggest. So anyway, I hope that, I hope that you found this useful, and I hope that each of these two views will reconsider um, their thoughts, whether you know it's on Israelology or on eschatology. And I hope that you'll join me in the future whenever it is that we get around to part three of this series. And in the meantime, I hope you'll join me for whatever is the topic of the next episode of the Field Apologetics Podcast. Until then.